C.S. Lewis was an atheist who became a Christian. In his memoir, Surprised by Joy, he tells us about the moment of his conversion. This is what he writes. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen. Night after night feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. Lewis is, in a sense, I think, speaking for all of us. All of us, in one way or another, come to God reluctantly. Who can help, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, adore the father who receives such reluctant prodigals with such joyful enthusiasm? Every single one of our spiritual biographies bear out the truth that God has proven more ready to meet with us than we have been ready to meet with him. Isaiah chapter 33, which is our passage for this morning, came out of a setting where God's people were reluctantly turning back to him. Not because he's the fountain of all good, but as their last resort, kicking and screaming as it were. Repentance was not their way of life. It was a last-ditch effort to simply stave off disaster, but in his grace, what we're going to see is that God rescues them, that they are the most reluctant converts. And why does God do it? That's the big idea of our passage this morning, that God saves us so that we would trust and treasure Him above everything else. That God saves us so that we would trust and treasure Him above everything else. We're going to understand the context of the passage that Matt just read, Isaiah 33, 1-6, which is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. We need to begin with a little refresher course from 2 Kings chapter 18. I encourage you to take out your Bibles, open your mobile phones, whatever it is that you use, and I want you to go to 2 Kings, right there in the middle of your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, followed by the greatest 
album Lyle Lovett ever produced, Joshua Judges Ruth. First, second Samuel, first Kings, second Kings. And we're going to be in chapter 18. Just to catch you up, this is about five or six years after Ashdod had fallen. Sargon, the king of Assyria, had been killed, and now there's a new king on the throne. His name is Sennacherib. Verse 14 in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 14 tells us that the most formidable empire in the Fertile Crescent had mauled their way through the southern kingdom of Judah, one town at a time, and now sat right outside the gates to Jerusalem. In verses 14 to 18, a glimpse through that, Hezekiah tried to buy off Sennacherib. He took all the gold and the silver that he can get his hands on, sends it to the Assyrian king, and the king just took the money, and then he turned to face. He decided to go ahead and conquer Jerusalem anyways. He presumed the city's mine anyway, so whether or not Hezekiah gives me the gold or not, one way or the other, it's mine. So in verse 19, the Assyria Tartan, that is the second in charge behind the king, well, he comes out and he begins talking a little bit of trash. He taunts Hezekiah in verse 20, essentially saying, we're coming whether you like it or not, and you're not going to be able to talk your way out of it. Not only that, but verse 21, look at that, Egypt's not going to be any help to you either, he says. He says, leaning on them is like leaning on the tip of a spear. You're only going to make things worse for yourself. In verses 23 through 25, his taunts go from the political to the theological. He's not just taunting their armies and their city, but he begins to taunt Jehovah. He says in verse 22, if you say we trust in Jehovah, well, I'm sorry to inform you, verse 25, Jehovah is the one that sent us here. What he's saying is, I'm sorry, but your God has turned heel. He switched sides. He's not for you anymore. He's on our side. Whether well, taunts were so blasphemous that Eliakim the priest in verse 26 is kind of like a parent trying to cover his children's ears and he begs them to speak in Aramaic instead of Hebrew so that the common Hebrew soldiers wouldn't be able to hear their taunts. I want you to notice that the Assyrian shows no regard for his request. He says in verse 27 that his message is not just for the king and the priests, but it is, quote, for all who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine. If you're somebody here that's not familiar with the Bible, yes, that's the kind of stuff that you find. It's been inspired by God's Word, and it's actually for our own instruction. What in the world would God want us to know? Well, this tartan is letting everyone know, threatening Jerusalem. This is what you're going to get if you trust in Hezekiah, or Egypt, or Jehovah. Your only way out, the, the common sense move here, think about it, is not to trust Hezekiah, is not to trust Egypt, and it's not to trust Jehovah. It is to trust in Assyria and to trust in King Sennacherib. He is your only hope. And in verses 28 to 35, he denounces Hezekiah in front of Jerusalem four times. He says first in verse 29 that Hezekiah can't protect you. And he says second in verse 30 that he's not going to prophesy to you either. 
You've got no stability and you have no word from the Lord. You are helpless. And then in verses 31 and 32, he gives his third denunciation. Not only will Hezekiah not be able to protect you, and not only will he not prophesy to you, but if you follow him, then you're going to be left eating your own feces. But if you follow us, you'll be eating figs. So let me ask you a question, Jerusalem. It's the Tartan speaking. Let me ask you a question. It's a really easy one. I'm going to put the cookies on the bottom shelf for you. What would you rather eat? Feces or figs? Seems like a pretty easy decision, doesn't it? But in verses 32 to 35, he delivers his final denunciation of Hezekiah by telling the people, don't you dare believe him when he says that your Lord will save you. Look at how all the gods of all these other countries have fared. And all these other countries were bigger than you and stronger than you. You see, they understood every country, every region, every kingdom to have their own god. It's little bitty regional gods and territorial gods. And he's saying, our God has proven to be mightier than every other God because look at all of the nations that we've destroyed in our wake. Your God won't be able to save you. Their gods couldn't save them. What hope do you have? Jerusalem, listen to me. The odds are not ever in your favor. Jerusalem's gold and silver are gone. The dignity of their king, gone. The honor of their God, gone. They sold out the very one from whom all blessings flow. And as soon as trouble came, they trusted not in God's promises, but in their plans. And when those failed, they trusted in their backup plans. And then they trusted in their backup plans to their backup plans until they finally ran out of plans. It's a little close to home for many of us, doesn't it? God has them to where they have nothing left. Nothing left to turn to. Nothing left to trust in. The only thing they have left is the grace of God. And it's in this hopeless situation of 2 Kings chapter 18 that Isaiah speaks the words that we had read earlier from Isaiah 33. So if you'll turn there with me to the book of Isaiah, or as some have rightly put it, the gospel of Isaiah. Chapter 33, and we're going to look at the first six verses. What hope... Do reluctant converts, kicking and screaming, doubting and questioning, have with the Holy One of Israel? Friends, Isaiah chapter 33 is for people who have not been trusting in God. It's for people who are beginning to see, perhaps for the first time, that they can't treat God on the one hand like a, like a lucky rabbit's foot and experience His presence and power. That they can't marginalize God in their lives and know His blessing. Isaiah 33 is for people who have given themselves to all the wrong things and now might be seeing their lives as one big missed opportunity. Oh, friend, if that's where God has you this morning, then God has you right where He wants you. And you are just in the right position 
You are in exactly the vantage point that you need to be at to know what Isaiah preaches down in verse 17. That is to behold the king in his beauty. And I pray that that's what God would open your eyes to this morning to see the beautiful king. Put your eyes in your Bible. Let's begin in verse 1. Ah, you destroyer. You yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you finish betraying, they will betray you. So let's recall from 1 Kings 18, Sennacherib betrayed Hezekiah. And now Assyria is going to destroy Jerusalem. Betrayal and destruction. Two important words from 1 Kings 18 that pop up again here in verse 1, betrayal and destruction. It seems as if nothing could stand in Sennacherib's way. Assyria seems to be getting away with everything, but as we know from earlier in the Gospel of Isaiah, Assyria is just God's instrument. You may remember all the way back in chapter 10, God called Assyria my rod and my axe. Assyria as powerful as they think they are, is no more than God's tool for doing God's work in his people. God says to Assyria, as soon as you've done everything that I've purposed for you, as soon as you've done everything that I need you to do, I'm going to put you away, just like I'd put away a tool. So according to God's sovereign design, the betrayer, according to verse 1, is going to be betrayed. The destroyer will be destroyed. The brilliant Isianic scholar Alex Mater commented on this verse saying, The Lord's perfect management of human affairs guarantees that for every trickster there is a trickster to outdo him, until in the end all alike perish in their cleverness. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of this over and over again, don't we? That when things are chaotic around us when evil is rising and our cities are burning, when our choices for president seems like a lose-lose proposition, when those that you trust the most wound you the worst, when you find that lump or spot and the doctor mentions the dreaded C word. In all these moments and many, many more, we need to be reminded that God is king And that he perfectly guides and uses even these things to accomplish his purposes in us. And that once they've served his good purposes, he will get rid of it, either in this life or in the age to come, but not a moment sooner. We're here in verse 1, the time has finally come. For the sake of his people, God is going to destroy the destroyer. In fact, that's what's at heart of that word at the very beginning of verse 1, awe. Some of your Bibles say, whoa, I think that's a better translation. See, chapters 1 through 12 in Isaiah, just by way of reviews, and some of you are joining us for the first time or just recently, chapters 1 through 12 highlight God's gracious purpose for his people. Then in chapters 13 to 27, those reveal God's gracious purposes for the nations of the world. That his people will not just be a a mono-ethnic people, but a multi-ethnic people 
But then in chapters 28 to 35, which is where we spent our time recently, it all argues that God has all of the grace and all of the power to do everything that he's promised. And that we've seen this word, woe, or awe, used over and over again by Isaiah through these sections. But this section, chapters 28 to 35, are marked by this key word. And if you had time to go back and look, which we don't this morning, you would see that this here in verse 1 is the sixth of six times that the word is used in this section. And the first five times in chapters 29 through 32, Isaiah spoke a woe over sinful, stubborn Judah. Every single one of them was a woe spoken over his people. But here in verse 1, instead of confronting Judah as he did the first five times, now God is addressing their enemy. Why the sudden change? Because God is done using his axe. It has served his purpose. God's people are finally, by God's grace, beginning to turn back, reluctantly perhaps, but to turn back to God in repentance. And verse 2 shows us what that repentance sounded like. Isaiah prays, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning in our salvation in the time of trouble. It's important to notice from the start that Isaiah petitions God's special covenant name. Anywhere you see in your Bible, Lord, in all caps, just translating the Hebrew Yahweh, it's the special name revealed to Moses to reveal to his people Israel. This is the God who had redeemed them and given them great and glorious promises. He is the promise-making God and he is the promise-keeping God. And here Isaiah makes his appeal to this God, to Yahweh, to the Lord. And the very first promise that he prays as he prays God's promises back to God is be gracious to us. Just keep your finger right there. Turn back a page or so to Isaiah chapter 30. You may remember just a few weeks ago, we studied that God had spoken yet another woe over Judah. But then he speaks words of comfort and grace as he so often does all the way throughout the book. And in verse 19, this is what Isaiah promises, or rather God promises through Isaiah. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem, and you shall weep no more. We just sung that this morning. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. Does that sound familiar? Here is God's promise. He will surely be gracious to you. And now here is Isaiah praying to the promise-making God, going, keep your promise. Be gracious to us. Friends, when we turn to God in faith, and we ask God to do what God has already promised to do, oh, God delights in those kinds of prayers. God's people are always at their best when they're asking God for what God has already promised. If you want to be sure that you are praying according to God's will, oh, then like Isaiah, you need to be sure that you are praying God's word back to God. And then you wait. That's what Isaiah says, verse 2. Be gracious to us, we wait for you. Isaiah presumes upon God's grace, but not upon God's timing. This is the mark of a faithful remnant. 
That those who truly belong to God wait on God. They know that God is in control and that, and that we are not. They know that God will make good on his promises, even if they don't know when God will ultimately make good on his promises. They know to trust his heart even when they can't see his hand. And what exactly is it then that God's people are waiting for? Well, Isaiah explains in the rest of the verse, verse 2, to be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Hebrew prayers and songs like this one in verse 2 often use what are called parallelisms. In other words, a second line will often follow the first and give more detail to explain it a little bit more. Here, Isaiah pleads with God, be our arm. And what he means by saying be our arm is simply this, be our salvation. What Isaiah is waiting for is God's saving arm. But, but when is he waiting for it? When is he hoping that it comes? When is he asking for it? Well, he says that I wait for your saving arm every morning. Why? Because as sinners in a sin-cursed world, every morning is the time of trouble. There's no morning where we wake up where trouble is not yet knocking at our door. Another pastor said in a sermon several years ago, I'll never forget, it just stuck out to me. He said, when I wake up in the morning, I feel like the devil has landed on my face and just camped there. You ever feel that way? That's just a vivid way of saying the same thing that Isaiah is saying. Lord, we're not looking for a one-time handout of grace. We want fresh mercy every single morning for every single trouble. We're not going to make it if you don't. It's as if the psalmist prayed in Psalm 5, Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. <laughs> Praying and watching. That's the posture of the pilgrim's life in this world. Praying, watching, and waiting on the Lord. Faithfully, expectantly, patiently. And as we see in verses 3 and 4, the attention turns back to Assyria, and we see that this is just the kind of prayer, the kind of prayer that, that cashes the blank checks of God's promises. It's the kind of prayer that God is faithful to answer. Verse 3, at the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered or literally plundered, just as the caterpillar plunders. As the locust leaps, so it is leapt upon. Here we have God taking action on behalf of his people. He's heard their cries in verse 2 and he's stretching out his mighty arm to save them. And notice in verse 3 that Israel's enemies flee. That when the glory of God is revealed in judgment, God's enemies will not run to God. They will only run away from God. They're just like those in Revelation chapter 6. The kings and the great and even the small and the poor that wishes that they could hide in a cave and be buried in a landslide rather than face the glory of God in judgment. It's an almost comical picture. I'd rather get crushed by rocks than face the glory of God. But that's exactly what we see here in verse 3. And in verse 4, we see that there really is nowhere to flee. Assyria had plundered Judah city by city, but now in verse 4, just as God promised, 
Now God is plundering Assyria. And all of this is evidence that he's not just some weak tribal deity. He's not just the God of the hills. He's not just the God of the fields. He's not just the God of the sea. He's not a God that is in any way connected or encompassed by his creation. No, in verse 5, Isaiah looks out at the people as Assyria is camped outside of Jerusalem and he says, the Lord is exalted and he dwells on high. Our God is not like the other gods. There is none like him. That he is holy, holy, holy. He's the one whose glory fills the earth. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is Almighty God. He is not part of the creation. He has created everything and is over and above all that He has created. He is the King of the cosmos. This is your God. Who are you to fear, little old Assyria? That'll preach. And that's exactly what Isaiah is preaching in verse 5. And he says in verses 5 and 6 that this God, this exalted, almighty, on high God, this is what he's going to do for his people in answering their prayer from verse 2. That first we see that he is going to fill Zion with justice and righteousness. I want you to pay close attention to that language of filling. It's important because it implies that God is the source of this justice and this righteousness. So for instance, Isaiah had already preached in chapter 5, we looked at it some time ago, that quote, the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Justice and righteousness is not just something God provides. Just and righteous is who God is. So when Isaiah says that God will fill his people with justice and righteousness, he's implying that there's coming a day when God himself will dwell with his people just as he's promised. And in dwelling with them, he will fill them with himself and they will become like him. That they will become just. They will be declared righteous. But that's not all. Look at verse 6. He says, He will become the stability of your times. Isaiah paints a picture of what this means later on in the chapter. You can glance down at verse 20. He says, Jerusalem, His people will be an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up nor will any of its cords be broken. This afternoon I'm driving few hours south to go camping with my family and I tried really hard to think of an illustration for this but even on my manliest days I'm not much of a camper I'm more of a glamper I need a shower I need working toilets I'm not sure I could survive some of you guys you love that kind of stuff I'm really excited to have a pop-up camper to camp in that's real camping So I had to send an email to some of my more outdoorsy friends asking them if they had from any of their own experiences a way to illustrate the meaning of this passage because my cupboard is bare. One friend sent me a story about his winter ascent 
at Mount Shasta. (laughs) Just that phrase, winter ascent, just saying it puts more hair on my chest. He says they set camp below a ridge at about 10,000 feet. That's feet. 10,000 of them. And he says that night, 90 mile an hour winds came blowing off of the mountain. He says that the wind sounded like cannons going off. But he said they had reinforced their tent by burying their ice axes. I got five of them in my garage, no big deal. By burying their ice axes into the snow... And lashing the tent to them, which ironically, he says, is called a dead man. And when the winds hit, he said all of the tent poles would flex and bend and it was pushing the tent over on top of them and those winds kept up, he said, all throughout the night, but the tent never moved. It stayed fixed and movable right where it was. Isaiah is saying that those who are filled with the righteousness and the justice of God are like that. They will not be like the man who builds his house on the sand, as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7. They'll be like the ones who build their house on the rock. And when the storms come and the floods come, it will not fall and it will not be washed away. And all of these glorious promises of justice and of righteousness, of stability being granted, all of these words can be summed up in one word in verse 6, and that is the word salvation. Isn't that what Isaiah prayed for back up in, in verse 2? Oh, be our arm, be our salvation. But as God always does, he does abundantly more than we could ever hope or ask for. He doesn't just give them salvation. He gives them the abundance of salvation. In fact, that word abundance in Hebrew is actually better, more literally translated store or storehouse. He says, he will be to them a storehouse of salvation. (laughs) Here's what it means. In verse 6, that the fear of the Lord, if you notice there, will be our treasure. And this treasure, that is the fear of the Lord, consists of gold and silver called wisdom and understanding. And all of this treasure is hidden away in this storehouse of salvation. All you 90s kids will remember that old Disney cartoon, DuckTales. It's probably on one of those classic cartoon shows now in which Scrooge McDuck is wealthy beyond imagination. Some of you remember. And he has all of his treasures stored up in a giant storehouse. And in the opening credits of the, of the cartoon, what you see is Scrooge McDuck in his bathing suit, you remember? And he takes a swan dive into it and he, and he backstrokes in it and he spits coins out of his mouth. That's a somewhat crude way of illustrating what's meant by treasure being stored in a storehouse of salvation in verse 6. that it will be our greatest delight. But this storehouse called salvation is not some place out there somewhere. The storehouse that God is promising is a person. And that person has been personified and predicted and revealed in part all the way back in Isaiah chapter 11. Turn with me to your left, Isaiah chapter 11. We're thinking about this storehouse of salvation. 
I preached this passage a while back. It's a messianic prophecy concerning the root of Jesse. And I want you to keep in mind the language from 33.6, wisdom, understanding, fear of the Lord. I want you to keep all that in mind because this is what Isaiah prophesies will be true of the Messiah beginning in verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and, get this, the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And oh, by the way, if you want to talk about justice and righteousness, you shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He will be the one through whom God establishes perfect justice and perfect righteousness. He has resting upon him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. God has revealed to Isaiah a mystery. Who is it? What is God doing in history? Where will we see this person and what will he be like? But what God revealed as a mystery to Isaiah and to Jerusalem as a mystery here in Isaiah chapter 11 has now been made fully known to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, keeping in mind the language of Isaiah 33 and Isaiah 11, wisdom, understanding, treasure, etc. I want you to listen to Paul's words from Colossians chapter 2 where he encourages believers, quote, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God has given us unimaginable treasure consisting of wisdom and understanding. And all of this has been hidden for us in Christ, the root of Jesse, our storehouse of salvation. By faith, If you are one who has been brought by God's grace to repent of your sins and trust in Christ, of entrusting yourself to his perfect life and of his death in your place on the cross, of of knowing that you have nothing to offer God by way of righteousness and you have only one thing, one thing left to hold on to and that is his grace to you in Christ, however reluctant you might be. Oh, friend, if you are in Christ by faith, then what belongs to Christ now belongs to us. And what has been hidden in Christ is all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we are in Christ and that now belongs to us. He is our storehouse. That Christ's delight is our treasure. Looking back at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3, his delight, it says, is in the fear of the Lord. Going back to chapter 33, verse 6, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. It's Christ's delight. It is our treasure. But what exactly is it that we're talking about when we talk about the fear of the Lord? Does it mean that we're scared of God? No, that's not what it means at all. We've seen already that the fear of the Lord consists in verse 6 of spiritual wisdom and of understanding. And we've seen that this spiritual wisdom and understanding is hidden in Christ and those who are hidden in Christ have no reason to 
fear God in a scared kind of way, that this fear of the Lord is possessing the true knowledge of who God is and what God has done in Christ and how everything else in our lives relates to Him. It's a kind of spiritual understanding that leaves us awestruck at the glory and the grace of God such that it compels us to center our entire lives around this glorious, high and lifted up, majestic and exalted God revealed to us in Jesus. This is the testimony of the church in the New Testament. Right after Pentecost, these new Christians, we read, sat under the apostles' teaching. They enjoyed newfound communion with one another. And the Bible says that awe came upon every single soul. That language of awe isn't some ambiguous emotional experience. No, in Christ, they had come to know the one true God. And in knowing God truly, they now understand themselves truly. Not only in relationship to them, but in relationship to one another. And everything else that God has created. All that to say is that the fear of the Lord is simply to say, this God is awesome. He's awesome. Brothers and sisters, this isn't meant to be exceptional in our churches. The awe-inspiring fear of the Lord is meant to be normative, normal. In the life of every believer and for every healthy church who is growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not just a set of experiences and it's not simply a set of doctrines. It is the Holy Spirit taking gospel doctrine and producing gospel culture produced by the Holy Spirit in which each member is helping one another treasure the knowledge of God in Christ so that we all might walk in a manner worthy of Him in the world, knowing Him and enjoying Him more. Brothers and sisters, the fear of the Lord is how churches display the beauty of Christ to the world. And it's what the Lord in His timing and grace uses to grow His church. Consider Acts chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, by the way, during this time of persecution, had peace and was being built up. And it goes on to say, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Simply put, The fear of the Lord creates healthy, holy, and attractive churches. And it does this in at least three ways. The first way that it does it is the fear of the Lord fuels our holiness. It fuels our holiness. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Peter 1.17, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That is, for as long as you're on this earth, on this side of heaven, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. All that is to say that the more that you and I are awestruck by the true knowledge of who God is 
and of his glory and grace revealed to us in Christ. And how everything in our lives, nothing in our lives going untouched, everything in our lives are related to him. Oh, the more that we will hate sin and want to throw off every single thing that encumbers us and the more that we will eagerly, by God's grace, fed by the fear and the awestruck majesty of God to pursue holiness. Because if the chief end of our life is to know God and to enjoy him, and if it is the case that God is holy, then brothers and sisters, listen to me. Growing in holiness is the path to knowing and enjoying God. There is no other path. The author of Hebrews says, apart from holiness, no one will see the Lord. So first of all, the fear of the Lord fuels our holiness. We don't try to grow in holiness so that we might be forgiven so that we might be accepted, but rather because we have forgiven, therefore we fear the Lord. And that changes everything. So first of all, the fear of the Lord fuels our holiness. Secondly, it fuels our evangelism. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we learn that all believers have been entrusted with what's called the ministry of reconciliation. Paul's not talking about getting people that don't get along together so that they begin to get along again. That's not what he's talking about. That might be a byproduct, but that is not what 2 Corinthians 5 is about. When he's talking about the ministry of reconciliation, that is to say, seeing sinners reconciled to God in Christ, he says this ministry of reconciliation is the message of reconciliation. You can read 2 Corinthians 5 this afternoon as you're resting. This message of reconciliation, friend, listen to me, says that all those who are not in Christ are enemies of God. That because of your sin, you have lived your life in high-handed rebellion against the God who has created you, the one upon whom you are dependent for everything, every single day, and the one to whom you are finally accountable. And yet this is love. That God so loved us while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Friend, there is only one way that you can go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God, and that is by relinquishing every white-knuckled effort in your life to prove to God that you are worthy of his love and affection, of worthy of his acceptance, throw all that away and to throw yourself in unbridled trust though perhaps kicking and screaming and reluctantly like C.S. Lewis and just like Israel but to throw yourself on the free gift of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ full forgiveness of sins perfect righteousness adoption into the family of God and an inheritance that is undefiled and perishable and will never pass away all for you but only in Christ That for all those who are outside of Christ, these things are hidden. Oh, but for those of us who are in Christ, that which is hidden is now found. Wisdom, understanding, treasure. Friend, trust in Christ. That's the ministry of reconciliation. That ministry is that message. Brothers and sisters, each of us have been entrusted with that ministry that is a message. And it's of this that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, 
we persuade others. What is it that ultimately motivates our willingness to share this message, even at great personal expense, with those who would count themselves enemies of God so that they might become friends of God? Nothing but awestruck wonder at the grace and the glory of God to you in Christ. No amount of guilt from the pastor is going to make you a better evangelist. Only the glory and the grace of God can motivate and mobilize and energize and animate you to that end. We need bigger views of God, smaller views of self, such that the fear of God, the awe of God, would lead us to be persuading, just as I attempt to persuade some of you to trust in Christ and be reconciled to God. Finally and thirdly, it fuels our worship. So we've seen that it, it fuels our holiness, it fuels our evangelism, but it also fuels our worship. Revelation 19.5, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. True worship is fueled by the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is characterized by spiritual wisdom and knowledge and understanding of who God is and what He has done in revealing Himself in Christ and how everything in the cosmos ultimately relates to Him. Worship is not merely an emotional experience. It is the true knowledge of God leading to a sense of awe in God, leading to the praise of God because in the praising of the thing, it completes the enjoyment of the thing. Just like my enjoyment of my wife is completed when I brag on my wife. So in infinitely greater terms, our enjoyment of God, that for which we have been created, is consummated, completed in our praise. When we sing it, when we speak it, that God's people are a worshiping people. That when we gather together, we value worship not because of its novelty or because of its aesthetic quality, but because of its object. Because God himself is delightfully wonderful and we will delight in him. That is what we will be doing four trillion years from now and you will never get bored with it. We want to be doing now what we will be doing in full four trillion years from now. And that is worshiping God in the fear of the Lord. One brother said it well, sound doctrine, that is truth about God revealed in his word and in Christ. Sound doctrine should drive the substance and the style of our worship. It should fill the content of our worship. It should motivate our worship since worship is always a response to the glory and the grace of God. That is right. So when we come together on a Sunday morning, singing is not merely what worship is. Worship is so much more than that, but it's not less than that. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us to exhort one another and encourage one another and to sing to one another so that the feeling of God would dwell richly in us. No. So that the Word of God would dwell richly in us. 
Because the word of God is what does the work of God and the people of God to the glory of God and the time of God until he comes again. Brothers and sisters, the fear of the Lord is the treasure stored up for us in Christ. Oh, when we help one another treasure this above all, that is growing in the knowledge of God that leads to the awe in God and enjoyment of God such that it fuels our holiness and fuels our evangelism and fuels our worship, that our church will embody more and more the kind of gospel culture that becomes healthy and holy and attractive. For the Lord will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of our times. Abundance of salvation. Wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure.